Doing another one here with the studio sound. The studio sound. You know, the American legal system, just launching right into it, the American legal system is largely based on precedent. It's not just that there are laws and we are meant to follow those laws and understand them and lawyers argue. They, they navigate and negotiate around those laws. It's also a system of precedent, which is why when you see court documents, court cases, it's filled with citations that refer to previous cases and precedent, basically showing that, oh, this, out, this case shows that this outcome came out of similar circumstances, and that's why a similar outcome or approach is relevant here. It's a big part of our legal system. But it's not exclusive to our legal system. It's also just the way our brains work. Human beings need context and precedent. And precedent establishes context for people. It, it, comes, it, it applies to taste. It applies to basically everything we do. We need something. We need some example or argument that convinces us that doing something or liking something is okay. So it's not like our legal system exists in some vacuum. It's that that's how our brains work. So of course our legal system would use precedent to put the current case in context because that's what we're doing all the time anyway. And a good example of that is those restaurants where they get a reputation. They're a popular restaurant that gets a reputation for having a rude staff or a rude owner, and that becomes a selling point. I think there's a restaurant in L.A. that's known for that. You go there because the wait is going to be rude. And that's the experience. That's the fun of it. But rude up to a point. And it's been established, like precedent has been established that you go there for that reason. And if you go there for that reason, like you've heard from people, oh, you go there and the waiter, he's a dick to you. You order your milkshake and he says, are you sure you want sprinkles on it? Are you really sure? And so you already know to expect that. And so you go there, and when you, experience, when you experience that, you're like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. This is fun. I'm going to give the guy a good tip. I'm going to tip the guy $100. But if you were on a road trip, and you had never heard of this restaurant before, and you were just like, oh, that place is open. Let's go there. And you go there, and the waiter is rude to you. And you don't realize that's supposed to happen. No precedent has been established. You're going to be like, oh my God, can you believe that? Way? That was such a shitty, that sucked, dude. That was such a shitty experience. That fucking sucked. You know, you're going to be upset. You're going to leave feeling bad. You're going to be like, dude, I didn't, I didn't even give the guy a tip. You're going to be upset by the experience. Because it wasn't established in your mind. Meanwhile, your experience was the exact same. Your experience going to that restaurant was the exact same. The waiter treated you identically to the way he would treat you if you did know that's how they act there. But it had been put in the proper context in one situation. And you see that a lot with you know, there, there are restaurants and businesses. It's like, oh, when I go to uh, Coney Island Hot Dogs in New York... The owner is like an 80-year-old man, and he's such a dick, dude, but it's fun. People love that. Like People like going to some old New York establishment and being like, oh, the guy's a huge dick, but it's fun. Dude, the dude's such an asshole, but that's the fun of it. 
It feels authentic or it's different. But if you don't know to expect that and you just have some asshole owner giving you shit, you're going to be like, that sucks, man. Don't ever go there. It doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel right. Which is why you need precedent to establish that. You need other people telling you that's what the experience is. When you go to Coney Island Hot Dogs, you're going to deal with uh, old Joe who's going to give you a piece of his mind. There was a place like that here. It was a Vietnamese restaurant, and there was the owner was always the guy. I mean, you'd go in there, and the owner would be always be the one to wait on your table. His name was Ken, a Vietnamese guy, and he was very weird and awkward, and it was on purpose. Like he kind of would—he wasn't a dick, but he would fuck with you. He didn't do all of the things you're supposed to do in customer service. He didn't act like what you would expect of a professional in that industry. And people talked about it, and they started to like it. And they started to tell each other that it was okay. It was like, oh, when you go to whatever that place was called, Mini Saigon. When you go to Mini Saigon, Ken is such a dick, but that it's fun, dude. You banter back and forth with him. It's fun. But I remember the first time I went there. And I remember thinking, like, I think I was with a girlfriend and someone else. And I remember we left and we're kind of like, that was kind of weird, wasn't he? Guy was kind of a dick. But then once you understand that that's what you get there and people like that, you go there and that's part of the experience. Oh, I wonder what Ken's going to say to me today, dude. You look forward to it. You're almost disappointed when he's not there. And that's very interesting to me how that gets communicated because there's places like that restaurant in LA that I don't know the name of. There's places like that that kind of market themselves as that. But it happens organically too. And like the East Coast is different. I mean, I've never been to New York, but I know part of the New York experience is that you go into these businesses and they don't necessarily treat you that well. It's kind of understood that New York has attitude. And the authentic New York dining experience is to get a taste of that attitude, getting a taste of that attitude. But outside of New York, you're not going to like that. Unless some sort of unless it gets put in a certain context and it's very social in nature. Like you need other people to tell you it's okay. You need other people to tell you that part of that experience involves the staff being rude to you. Otherwise you're going to go in and just be like, they were awful. And there's kind of a threshold too. Where like, even if the staff is supposed to be rude and that's how it's marketed, if they don't do what they're supposed to do, like if they don't bring your food, like if they make you wait for your food, if it becomes some sort of S&M session where they get your order wrong and they bring it cold and are really unapologetic about it, that's going to be a different experience. Like that's not the fun sort of rudeness that you're looking for. That's just bad service. So there's kind of a threshold to it. Like it has to be this safe sort of territory where you're still getting what you want. It's a lot like BDSM. Like you're still getting what you want and you know there's a certain boundary. But it's sort of rough. That's basically what those places are. It's like dining BDSM. But what's interesting to me is like places that haven't marketed themselves as that but still get a reputation... And the reputation is positive. Like they don't get a reputation for being 
a place to avoid where people are mean to you. They get a reputation. Oh, you go there. Because that's what happened with this mini Saigon place. They didn't do any marketing. But a lot of it was right downtown and a lot of people went there and just it got an organic reputation where like, oh, when you go there, part of the experience is that Ken is awkward and kind of mean. But things have to reach a tipping point. You know, one of the, you know, I'm not a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell, but one of the best ideas that he made popular that he communicated to the masses was that idea of the tipping point. That something builds slowly in popularity, it establishes itself among a very small group of people, but something happens that causes that tipping point to shift. And I think that's what happens with, with what I'm talking about here, where it's like something gets communicated to people, a large enough group of people, that this thing is desirable and you want it that way. But those same people wouldn't immediately recognize that on their own. If those people went to Mini Saigon, which is no longer around, I don't think. But if those people went to Mini Saigon and he treated them that way and they didn't know that he was kind of supposed to treat them that way, they might be like, God, that fucking sucked, dude. I'm never, I'm never getting the fuzz. The fuzz good, but it's not good enough to deal with that, dude. You know, people would probably leave feeling put off. Those, those wouldn't be the people who establish the precedent and context. They're the people who later see that somebody else has established precedent and context. The people who have established that, oh, it's a fun experience to go there and have him treat you that way. Like they see those people say that and that makes it okay to them. And people, that rules a lot of people's taste. Like I had an experience in, I think I was a junior in high school and I went to go see some new doom metal band. It was a local doom metal band. It had members of other bands. And this is right before doom metal became the hip new thing for a while. You know, doom metal had obviously been around a long time, but not that many people gave a shit about it in 2002 or 2003. That was right around the time that suddenly doom metal got a makeover and suddenly people were all about it. But I went to go see this local doom band and it was at a teen center and I assume people would be interested in it because doom metal was picking up a little bit of steam. You could tell that there was a newfound interest, like old doom records that nobody had cared about for years were like getting high prices on eBay, but it hadn't become popular even among underground type people. So I went and saw this band and there's a very small crowd. It was like a weeknight at a teen center. There were people there, but it wasn't like a show show where it was just filled with people. But I was excited to see this band and they were, they were nothing special, but it's like they were the only local band who was playing very slow, heavy music. And so I got up front. I stood at the front of the stage and I watched their entire set. And I wasn't looking around. I was just listening to the music and I was as close as you could get to the band without being weird. And when their set ended a half hour later, 40 minutes later, I turned around and I was the only person watching them. And I suddenly felt extremely self-conscious where like when they had started playing, there was a small crowd of people watching them. But during the set, those people went and they were like, they were outside, they were sitting over by the merch table. I was literally the only person watching them. And I felt stupid for a second. 
even though I enjoyed their music, like like I said, they were nothing even special, but that was what I wanted to see at the time. And I turned around, and when I saw that I was the only person, that the entire room could just see me as the lone fanboy standing there watching the band, I felt stupid for a second. And I don't care what other people are doing. So that tells you a lot that I even I felt stupid being the only person watching them turning around and finding that out. Because something about that tells you like you're not supposed to do that. When you find out that you are the only person still watching them, like something deep inside of you almost communicates you did something wrong. You're doing something wrong. But, you know, if there had been a crowd of people still watching them, I wouldn't have felt that way at all. And it's not like I actually felt that way. It was just a split-second feeling. A split-second feeling of self-consciousness, self-awareness. But if a group of people had still been watching them, I wouldn't have felt that way at all. And if somebody had walked in that room right then and seen one person watching the band there's a good chance that they would not have gone up there and stood with me. Maybe if they were truly interested, they would have no matter what. But if somebody had walked in that room and, and seen this band playing and they just saw me, stupid old me, up there, they wouldn't have thought, oh, that guy has the right idea. I'm going to go do what he's doing. This band looks good. They wouldn't have done that. But if they saw that there was a crowd of people, if they saw like even a small crowd of people watching the band, they would have thought, oh, those people know what they're doing. That crowd communicates to me that this is good or potentially good. It's worth seeing. It establishes precedent. It puts the band in context. This might be good. This is something worth doing because look at that group of people. That group of people is watching that band. I'm going to do that. But it was funny to me to think back on that. Because it's the only time I remember that happening. Is turning around and seeing that I was the only person still watching them. And feeling this sense of embarrassment that I had no basis for feeling. But when I turned around, I was like, oh, that wasn't the cool thing to do. The cool thing to do tonight was to not watch this band. And you see that play out over and over again. And uh, it reminds me of this video. There's this viral video. I keep talking about viral videos. There's this old viral video that I think about. It was filmed at a festival in Washington State here. There's a venue called The Gorge, and they have some sort of fest. They have some sort of big camp. Like People camp out there and watch a whole bunch of bands. I think it's called Sasquatch. It's called Sasquatch. Sasquatch Fest. And there was always a bunch of bands playing there. My friends used to go out and stay there. I never went. But there was a video from there. And it's one of those places where, like, there's an... It's an outdoor theater. It's an amphitheater, as they call it. And it stretches on for, like, a half mile. And there's this footage up on a hillside, like, a long distance away from the stage. And it's a bunch of people sitting on blankets. And there's one guy, one zany dude a ZD, zany dude. And he's just wildly dancing by himself on the hillside. He's nowhere near the stage. He's like a half mile away from the stage. You see it in the distance. 
But this zany dude is just capital Z, capital D is just dancing, throwing his arms around. He's not a good dancer. He's just, you know, having a seizure on the hillside. And everybody's just watching at him and kind of snickering. They're just like, oh, look at that guy. Look at that weird guy. Oh, he's getting really into this. What a what a zany dude. And that goes on for a few minutes. Like this guy, he's just he's all into it. And he's being a total goofball. He's being a real clown. And uh, then another person joins him. I don't know if it was a friend of his. I don't know if it was just a random guy. But there's this other guy who joins him. And then they both start doing this zany, wild seizure dance. And people still are just kind of laughing at them. It's not like anybody's showing scorn. But you can see what the people on the blankets are feeling. They're watching them and they're just like, look at that guy. Look at him. What a, what a goofy guy. You can tell they're probably feeling a little embarrassed for him. They're probably like, oh, that's embarrassing to be dancing by yourself, acting like you're having a seizure on the hillside. And it goes on for a little while longer with just these two people dancing. And then a third person joins them. And three is the magic number. Three is always magic. And that continues on, I think, just with the three of them. But you can feel like when the third person joins them, you can feel a shift in energy. You can actually sense something changing when that third person joins them. And next thing you know, like a group of people join them. And then another group. And now there's like 10 people all doing this crazy. It starts starts becoming this like orgy of limbs. And then all of a sudden it just, they get swarmed. Suddenly it's this huge group of people. People start getting up off their blankets and joining them. You start to see people running in from off camera and it just grows and grows. And there's people like so desperate to be there. They're so scared of missing out on this event that has suddenly taken place that they're like falling on their way there. They're like slipping on the grass because even though this thing is showing no signs of dying down and it just started, there are people who are like, oh, it's happening and I got to get there now. Even though this has been going on for minutes, like they wouldn't have done that if there was just the one guy doing it because he was doing it for a while. But once two and then three people joined, then a small group of people that communicated that, oh, this is okay. And not only is it okay, it's worth doing. And it's, it's more worthwhile to do what they're doing. It's going to be more fun than me just sitting on my blanket here. Like it was put in context. Like the, like the context became, this is the fun thing to do here. And you can see the desperation of people who are running toward it after it's already full steam. Like they don't want to miss out. They now feel, whereas a few minutes earlier, they were embarrassed for the guy. They're now terrified of missing out on what's going on. And it's very easy to get into that. Oh, look at these sheep. Oh, look at these fucking followers. Look at these sheep. It's very easy to to sound like that's what I'm trying to say by even describing this. But this is what happens. It's what people do. And it's how trends work. It's how most things happen. There is this sort of social contagion where precedent gets gets established that, oh, that thing that that one guy was doing didn't establish precedent. He was just some lone goofball. But as two, three, four people joined, it established precedent that like, oh, we can join in 
And hey, it actually looks like they're having more fun than I am. And then the context becomes that's the fun thing to do, so they do it. It's really interesting to watch that happen. It's really this video is very interesting because whoever was filming it, it's I think this video is from like 2009. It's a very grainy old cell phone. But you can tell whoever was filming it had no idea this was going to become a phenomenon on the hillside. They just saw this goofy guy by himself and were like, I'm going to film the goofball having a seizure to this music. But they ended up capturing the perfect illustration of that tipping point phenomenon. Where it's like once it reached the tipping point, it just swelled. But meanwhile, it had been minutes and minutes. It had been a significant amount of time when it was just one, two, maybe three people. But once it reached that tipping point, it was just, it turned into just this cartoon swarm of people. And, you know, going back to the show I was at, you know, I was the lone man watching it. And I didn't feel cool. I didn't feel like, oh, I know something they don't. I was just legitimately interested in the music. I didn't turn around and go, look at all these stupid people who didn't get the memo that this band is cool. I actually felt the opposite, even though I'm not very socially influenced in that way. To my benefit and my detriment. You know, but even though I'm not so, as socially influenced in that way, it was very telling to me that I turned around and felt stupid for a second. I wasn't like moshing. If anything, I was just standing there like absorbed in the music, like maybe slowly headbanging. A totally normal thing to do. But when you're the only person doing that and you turn around, you're like, oh, I feel stupid. And so other people must feel that even more acutely. They must, if, they, if they're the only person doing that, they might be like, oh, shit, this is the wrong thing to do. But you need the context. You need, you need that context communicated to you. And what I'm interested in, like speaking of the idea of a tipping point and this video that perfectly illustrates the tipping point in real time, I'm wondering how that tipping point plays out like with something like rude restaurants. Like somebody goes to that restaurant and is like, oh, wow, the owner is really rude. That's kind of fun. A bunch of people are going there and they're like, the food's good, but it sucks. The owner's a dick. But at some point it reaches the tipping point where like word gets around and then that becomes desirable. That becomes an event where you go there for that reason. And that happens organically. That, that happened organically with Mini Saigon. And I'm very interested in like when that happens in that situation. It plays out, but it's harder to, to watch it. It's harder to observe. I guess it would just be through word of mouth. Because I even remember like my girlfriend and I at the time, because we would go there and I was never put off by it. Like I was never put off by Ken. I kind of liked, because all that phony professionalism, like I don't like the person serving me in a restaurant to act like I'm a noble and they're a nobody servant who has to make me happy. I want them to do their job, but I don't like that role play. It's one of the reasons I don't really like going to restaurants. Is I, I just don't like that feeling of role play. So I did like that Ken was kind of a dick. It wasn't an attraction to me, but it was just kind of, if you want a bowl of pho that's good, you go there, and then the waiter's, you never know what the waiter's going to say. You never know what he's going to give you shit about. 
because he had a thick Asian accent too, but he was kind of Americanized. He lived here a long time. So his jokes were, you didn't always get his jokes, which I think was, was part of the fun. It was like he was constantly presenting you with these riddles. But I remember talking to my, like my girlfriend and I hanging out with people and, and we'd be talking about, well, where you, where do you like to get your fur? Where do you like to get your fur? And mini Saigon would come up and someone would say something like, oh yeah, that place is good, but that guy's kind of a dick. And then we might say to them, yeah, but that's fun, isn't it? Like that's, oh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the fun of it. And they would be like, yeah, now that you mention it, it is. Like they had a more of a negative impression, but just having a conversation with somebody about that restaurant, they were kind of on the fence and just having a conversation where somebody else says, yeah, but isn't that kind of the fun of it? Cause you get what you want. They're like, oh yeah, it is. And then they probably have the same conversation with somebody else. So it gets communicated that that's okay. It puts it in a certain context. And a lot of things work that way. You know, speaking of going to shows as a teenager, that was the period where I went to concerts. You know, I go to a lot of local concerts and sometimes you'd be watching a band who had kind of picked up a little bit of local momentum. They had a local following. And there were times, though, where I kind of got outside of my own head and I thought about the situation and I was like, it's funny that people are into this. It would be some band that was really not something, not something you would ever expect people to like. And you could barely hear it. It's like they're playing in some shitty, poorly... Some, some shitty teen center with poor acoustics through a bad PA playing like discordant music. Not something that would be immediately accessible to anybody, but there'd be a crowd of people moshing and headbanging. And I remember like looking around and thinking like, what are these people hearing? What are these people actually hearing? And a lot of them probably liked what they were hearing. But a part of that experience was the fact that a crowd of people is there nodding their head, communicating that this is something we can like. This is something you can like. Whereas if they were just to hear that on its own, if they were to listen to that band through that sound system with nobody else around, they might not even know that it's something you can like. But the fact that there are other people around them communicating that not only can you like this, but we like this. That tells them, oh, it's okay to like this. And it's not like I'm saying they're posers who don't know what they're listening to. That's just the difference maker when it comes to them even giving it a chance. The fact that they know that somebody can possibly like this makes them more likely to like it. And I've talked about that with girls. Like I, I brought up that story a few times about the girl in seventh grade. It was really a there's something about Mary thing where she was a very pretty girl. But she wasn't the prettiest girl. She was tall and thin. She was underdeveloped, like she didn't have boobs yet. She wasn't shapely. She was just very tall and thin. And she had a very pretty face. She had no personality. She was a nice girl, but she had no personality. Every single boy that year liked her. If you were hanging out with a bunch of boys, and that was the age where you start sharing who your crush is, people be like, who do you like? Who do you like? Who do you like? 
Who do you like? Who do you like? Who do you like? And uh, without fail, like every boy in the group would be like Brittany. I like Brittany. And then you'd go around the circle, not like this was organized, <laughs> not like this is like a system, but you just go around the group and people be like, I like Brittany too. I like Brittany too. I like Brittany too. And at the time I was like, I like her too. I liked her a lot. I was obsessed with her for a little while. I had no chance with her, but I was obsessed with her too. And what I realized at some point though was like, she's attractive. She has a very pretty face. Even though we were all going through puberty at that time, I don't think it was sexual. Because she didn't come across sexual. She didn't, there, was no, there was no pheromone thing going on. She wasn't shapely. She wasn't that girl who developed early. But it seemed to be like... It's like guys knew that other guys liked her. Therefore, it communicated to them that she was worth liking. I mean, you see this on eBay and things like that, where like when somebody sees that something already has a bid, they're more likely to think like, oh, that's that's a desirable thing to want. The fact that somebody else wants that means I might want that. The fact that all these other guys like that girl, that means I might like her too. And it's not that you don't actually find her attractive or desirable or you or that you don't here I am comparing women to eBay items but that's what they are women are just eBay items no but uh it turns out men are too but uh it's one of those things where it's not that you don't find that girl genuinely attractive and don't have a genuine crush but the attention that all the other guys are putting on her makes you put more attention on her it's sub, it makes you subconsciously say, well, there must be something about her. So you pay a little more attention to her. You notice her a little more. It's not like everybody is completely hollow. I mean, everything's an illusion, of course. But, you know, it's not like nobody has any taste whatsoever. Even the people who join in later. But it's that a certain amount of people see that girl and they think she's already been approved. And the fact that everyone else has already approved of crushing on her means that maybe I should too. You know, they don't think that through. They don't decide to do that. It's just what they do. And this is the way a lot of trends develop. This is why certain things take off. You know, you think about new music that emerged in decades past. It wasn't that everybody decided all at once that that was the music you should like. It wasn't like something like punk, like a phenomenon like punk. It wasn't like that emerged and everybody who heard it just immediately said, this is the cool thing to be into. This is amazing. Oh my God, this is amazing. It's not like that was the, the thought that everybody shared. There was a small group of people who it appealed to and they invested heavily into it. Other people saw that and they thought, well, hey, those people seem to be onto something. They seem to be noticing something. I better give it some extra attention. I better pay a little bit more attention to that. And they might find out that they genuinely like it. There's also a certain sort of person who is just a follower. I try not at this point I don't even I don't even have any issue with those people. Unfortunately, when you even talk about that 
objectively, you sound like you're just calling people sheep. You just, call, you just think people are sheep and they, they are just idiots who follow the fucking masses. You're talking about the masses? Talking about them asses? You know, it's, it's very easy when you talk about these things objectively to sound like you're complaining about the masses or followers or trends. Unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, just describing it objectively, depending on your point of view, just gives you kind of, I mean, it sounds negative by default, but I'm at a point where I don't even feel negative about it. There will always be a part of me that's resistant to those things, that doesn't trust those things. But I don't even feel negative. Like when I when I think it's it's like what I was saying about fair weather football fans. I don't resent fair weather football fans. At this point, if if there's a bunch of people who only like my team when they're doing well, hey, there's more people to talk to about my team when they're doing well. I can be a gatekeeper or I, I can be defensive of certain things, and I don't like it when a lot of people just you know go whatever way the wind's going. But in general, I don't feel some like negative, this is mine, or you have to be true or pure. I don't, I don't feel that way as much as I did when I was younger. So when I talk about these things, I'm just trying to talk about it objectively because this is what happens. A certain number of people are interested in something either because they genuinely like it or they like it because it's different. And then other people notice that and they start paying more attention to it. And then a certain other number of people, probably most people realistically, are just like, well, this is something to be into and I'm worried about missing out if I'm not into it. Because that fear of missing out plays a big role. And in the video of the people running toward the, uh, the group of dancers on the hillside, the seizure dancers on the hillside, you can see that desperation in the way some people are running. They're not going to miss, th- it's not going to end anytime soon. This dance is in full swing, but you can see from the way they're practically slipping, some of them do slip, that they are so desperate to get there because they fear that they're going to miss something if they don't get there. So that fear of missing out plays a big role. When people see that something is worth paying attention to, a number of people are like, well, I don't know if I like it or not, but I'm worried about missing out if I don't pay attention. It might not even be interesting to me. But I don't want to miss out on something that is interesting to other people. And selling records online the last few months, I'm very aware of this when it comes to the market of niche music. Because I'll find things that I'm trying to sell and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, five years ago I could have sold this for $100. Five years ago this was hot. Five years ago, like if you put this on eBay, you know, the bid would go high. And then Discogs is interesting, you know, being new in the last six months to Discogs. It's interesting because it tells you the lowest price that something's ever sold for, the median price, and the most that it's ever sold for. It doesn't tell you when, though. And there are a few things that I've tried to sell that at one point went for a very high price, But the other copies being sold aren't going for very high prices. The median is relatively low. And I think I know exactly when that went for that price. Like there was a tape that I sold on eBay over a decade ago, probably 12, 13 years ago. It was a demo tape by a a band from kind of a hip guy. He started a new band and 
I got a free copy of his demo that I, and I had no interest in it. So I, I sold it as soon as possible on eBay, on eBay. And it went for $200. It was the most that I had ever sold a record for at that point. And, or an album of any kind. And I would not be able to sell that for that price now. Even though it's still just as rare, maybe even a little bit more rare, I doubt that I would make that money on it now. I haven't checked, but I doubt that I would make $200 on it. But there was all of this focus and attention on it. It was very desirable. And that desirability is what increased the price. Whereas now, you know, the, the focus has shifted. I'm sure there are many people who still want that, but getting $200 for it just isn't going to happen. And so any kind of market works that way, like there, where there's like a window of time. It's like the stock market, which I have no experience in, but it's like the stock market where it's like there's a time to sell. There is a time to sell it for peak price, peak value. And it can drop to nothing very quickly. And it's all based, it's social. I mean, the stock market is social. It is a, a sociological phenomenon. I would love to have a lot of money someday because I would love to play the stock market. I really enjoy things like that. I would love to test my intuition. I would love to test my, my logic as well because it's a combination of that logic and intuition. I would love to test that out in the stock market. I can see why people get into it. Even though I'm not a math guy, I'm not a money guy or a numbers guy. I'm not a math guy, a money guy, or a numbers guy. Even though I'm not into that stuff on its own, just that idea of the market's ups and downs is very interesting to me. And you can see where everything I'm talking about right here plays directly into that. Where it's like the level of focus on something. Like if you remember when Facebook went public, when they entered the stock market, it was when it was around the time that like everybody and literally their mom had gotten a Facebook account. But I remember like reading some stuff that insightful people had written where they're like, what's it actually based on? They have a lot of users. They have advertising. But they don't have a, a real product. Like Facebook itself, it's a service but it's not a real um, material product. Not that everything has to be a material product. But the idea, like there was all this hype where people were like, Facebook stock is going to be worth so much. It was like gold to people. And a guy that I went to high school with, I remember him like sharing an article about how like some businessman was because, you know, in Seattle, they used to have a professional basketball team called the Supersonics that moved. And it's a sore spot for Seattle people. I don't really give a shit because I don't like basketball that much. But it's a sore spot for Seattle sports fans because they moved the team. And there's a lot of bad blood about moving the team away from Seattle. So there's this dream that everybody has of where they're going to create the Supersonics again. Some wealthy businessman is going to start the Supersonics over again. And there was this article about how some wealthy businessman in the area, he was going to invest in Facebook stock and use the profits to establish the Supersonics again. And everyone was excited about it. This article talked about it. People I knew, people I grew up with were like, dude, it's, dude, it's genius. Dude, it's just genius. 
He's going to buy Facebook stock and, and fund the basketball team. Well, that didn't happen. Facebook stock, you know, I don't, I don't follow it. But it didn't become this solid gold. Facebook stock was not what it seemed to be. Facebook was popular at the time. It was at its peak in terms of popularity. But it's not something that is going to have much long-term value. And we can see where Facebook's other products, nobody really gives a shit. Nobody really gives a shit about their attempts to get into like games and the metaverse. Maybe I'll eat my words, but it just doesn't seem like it's going to pan out in any significant way. They're going to throw a lot of money at it. A certain number of people are going to use it. But I don't see them creating another phenomenon, especially one that gets them money. But uh, for a short time there, though, buying Facebook stock seemed like a good idea because that's where the focus was. That's what the masses were focused on. All of these people were saying Facebook stock is valuable. So it was valuable for a time. A bunch of people saying, oh, this band's record is really desirable. That makes it desirable. That makes it valuable. But that's not sustainable. It really it depends on people's whim. And you can't trust that. I think that's where my opinion comes in. Maybe it's not an opinion, but just any negativity I have toward trends and the masses all going along with something. It's not that I see them as followers or lesser or anything like that. It's more just that I don't trust it. I see that and I'm like, this isn't trustworthy, which is interesting because what's attracting to them is that it seems trustworthy. I can trust this now. Precedent has been established that makes this trustworthy. Oh, that lone guy dancing. I don't trust it. That looks embarrassing. I don't want to be alone with that weird guy. I don't want to be alone with the weird guy. That's, how, that's what they're feeling. And then when they see enough people up there, they suddenly start thinking, I trust that now. I trust that I can go over there and dance with that group of people and I won't stand out. I won't embarrass myself because I can trust the situation. Whereas I could be doing the same exact thing with just that one crazy guy, but I might embarrass myself. I might regret doing it. I might not have fun. I might feel weird. But once that trust has been established, that's when people run toward it. So a lot of what I'm talking about here, it's establishing trust. It's telling people, this is something you can do. It's like with the girl. You could take a girl that is not traditionally attractive, and we see this happen with famous people sometimes. Not a lot, but it does happen. Where you take a woman who is not conventionally attractive. You see this happen in the modeling industry. And if, it, if enough focus gets put on her, if enough people approve of her, if the situation be becomes trustworthy, other people will be like, well, I can like her too and nobody will make fun of me. Oh, I can, I can have a crush on her too and nobody will look at me and say, you have bad taste in women. Oh, you like the ugly chick? You, you, you like the ugly chick? 
That almost makes you gay. It's almost like you're you're like almost gay because you like an ugly girl. At a certain point, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You can trust the situation. But what we see with a lot of trends is that people look back on them and they say, I don't even know what I was thinking. You see with haircuts. Like people will get the dumbest haircuts once it's communicated to them that, oh, you can do that and you won't be made fun of. You can get that haircut and people think you're cool for a short window of time. But in 10 or 20 years, when your kids are looking at those photos, they'll be like, I can't believe you thought that was cool. And you'll even look at it yourself and say, I I can't believe I thought that was cool. I mean, I look back at the fashion that was popular when I was young, like how baggy clothes were. When I was in elementary school and junior high, people dressed like clowns. They wore such baggy pants. I had such baggy clothes. You know, you wore the dumbest decorations. You wore the dumbest necklaces. Your haircut was so stupid. And you look back on that and it looks stupid. Now that you're removed from it and other trends have taken its place, you look back on that and you're just like, that is fucking stupid. Oh my God. But at the time you weren't worried about being made fun of because it was established that context had been established that this is cool, that you won't be made fun of for wearing pants that big, for sagging your pants, doing this or that. But as that trend comes and goes, you look back on it and that safety is gone. And you're like, well, that's embarrassing. I mean, I even look back at facial hair, things that didn't seem that crazy at the time. Like what was popular for a while around the late 90s, early 2000s, probably stretched on through at least half the 2000s, was having just a chin goatee. You could have just a little bit of facial hair on your chin, no mustache. You'd shave everything except what was on your chin. And all kinds of guys had it. It was considered cool. Dorky guys would get it to try to look cool. Cool guys had it. You also saw chin beards. Like someone would grow out the beard along their jawline, shave the mustache, and that was considered acceptable and cool. I look back on that now, I'll see that on occasion. Like I I had the little chin thing. All I could grow for a while was like a nasty, thin little goatee on my chin, and I had it for years. I had it for part of high school. I think I had it for maybe even even the start of my uh, first year of college. I don't remember, but... I look back on that and I'm like, that's so dumb. It's so stupid looking. But at the time, it felt safe. It felt safe to have just hair on your chin. But at some point, that became stupid. People started to realize that was stupid. And now you don't see anybody with that. It's extremely rare to see anybody with just a chin goatee or a chin beard. Nobody thinks that's cool anymore. Goatees in general. Goatees were very hip for a while. In the 90s, goatees were how you, you know, they were stylish. At some point, they became uncool, though. The idea of being a guy with a goatee became uncool. I sometimes still have one. Pretty much throughout my adult life, I'll occasionally have a goatee with the mustache. I don't grow it out very far, but I like it. I like having just a, you know, I think, you know, some people can pull off anything. You know, some people can 
pull off a goatee. Some people can pull off a chin beard. Not very many people. Some people can pull off a certain haircut. And those are the people who usually communicate that it's cool and safe. It's like the haircut that I talk about that was so popular for three years around the mid-2010s. The haircut where guys were shaving the sides of their head and then either having a pompadour sort of thing on top or slicking it back. It was the craft brew haircut. The haircut you have when you're going out for craft brew. The barbershop haircut. So many guys got that during that time. And even though I thought it was stupid from the start, stupid from the start, I understood what people were seeing because select people could pull it off. And people saw that and they wanted to, they were like, I want what he has. I want to do what he's doing. They would never be the first person to do it. They would never be the person who, who goes to the barber and just says, shave the sides of my head and do something kind of stylish on top. They would never be that person themselves. But when they see that somebody else has done it and it's now safe, they will do it. And like that tipping point idea, it goes in phases where there's people who do it initially for their own sake, either to set themselves apart or because they genuinely think it's cool. Then there's a phase of people who are responding to that, but it's still not completely safe. It's still not entirely safe to get that haircut. But then it reaches a point after the tipping point where it's now very safe, but it's starting to dwindle. Its shelf life is now very short. And the same people tend to latch on to trends around that time. I always use the example of my friend I grew up with, where he was always a late adopter. Nice guy, good guy. But you didn't go to him for the new thing. You didn't go to him for a fresh idea. He appreciated other people's ideas but you always noticed that he was the last person to do what people were doing and would do it for a little longer than it was cool. He got a bowl cut in school. Bowl cuts were very popular for a while. He got a bowl cut. He was the last person with a bowl cut. And he, I always used him as sort of a test. Like I, I, I was aware of this even growing up where... I used him as kind of a test where whenever he would do something, I would be like, oh, okay, it's on its way out. And I didn't mean it in a condescending way. I just kind of said to myself in my head, oh, he's doing it now? Okay, well, it's definitely on its way out. And he's the one who's now a woman. And you can read into that however you want. But very susceptible to trends, but didn't adopt them until they were safe. Didn't take them on until they were firmly, like, didn't take them on until you were seeing them in advertisements. And a few years back, about five or six years, probably about five years ago, I looked at Facebook, and this is before he transitioned into a woman. There were no signs of it at the time. That seems to have happened very suddenly. He gave no indication he was going to go in that direction. But about five years ago, I got on Facebook and I saw that he had that haircut. I saw that he had gotten the haircut where you shave the sides of your head and get some sort of barbershop 
pompadour craft brew slick back i saw that he had gotten that and i was like oh because that haircut had been in full force by that time at that point like half the dudes you were seeing around had gotten that haircut at least in this area but when i saw on facebook that he had gotten that haircut and he was showing it off with a new profile pic new profile pic i remember going oh okay This marks the decline of it. And sure enough, a short amount of time later, nobody has that haircut. Nobody's getting that haircut. And what's funny about that is the way companies invest in these trends. Because there are like new hip barbershops that opened where their logo would be a man with that haircut. And now that haircut's not even popular. And these barbershops use that haircut in their marketing material. They were banking on the idea that, because I think that haircut made guys go to traditional barbershops. Like in the same way that guys who are into hip hop and like urban fashion go to barbershops to get a fade. They don't go to hairmasters. They don't go to sport cuts. They go to a kind of an old school barbershop to get their fade due. Their fade due. Guys started going to those, you know, old school style barbershops to get uh, the sides of their head shaved and to get kind of... Because those haircuts, they're not far removed from a fade. Sort of the same... It's sort of a... It's like the non... It was like the non-hip-hop version of getting a fade. But it's funny to me how many... And they weren't... They weren't actually old school barbershops. Like these newer barbershops that opened, like their aesthetic was actually the worst of both worlds because a legitimate old school barbershop is cool. You know, like an old guy who cuts people's hair and it looks old timey. That's cool. But these new barbershops that opened up that were catering to that look, they were like going for this old timey barbershop sort of aesthetic, but combined with the worst aspects of modernity. And that's always the worst aesthetic. The worst aesthetic to me is when someone tries to combine old fashion with current modernity. It never ages well. It's always the nastiest hybrid of aesthetics. It's like steampunk put to life. Like how steampunk is the worst combination of aesthetics. Like that old timey Victorian stuff. Victorian stuff isn't for me, but it has an appeal. There's a reason why people look at Victorian clothing and think like, well, that was a certain time and place and it, it has an appeal. It's very well defined. But combining that with technology and machinery and mechanics, which are cool in its own right. You know, steam era machinery has an aesthetic appeal in its own right. Technology has an aesthetic appeal in its own right. But when you combine that with Victorian clothing and stuff, it looks awful. It's not cool at all. And that's what those barbershops were like. It's like they were basically the steampunk of modern fashion. They were like the steampunk of reality. Where it's like they're trying to combine these two eras, thinking it makes them classy but also hip. But it actually achieves neither one of those. Just my opinion. Now they're stuck with all this advertising for a haircut that 
totally lost its all all of its value. And now when you see somebody with that haircut, they look like an idiot. It didn't age well at all. But it, it you know it explains things like the mullet. You know, by the late 90s, very few people still had mullets. Like in the early 90s, sure, you still saw a lot of them. But by the late 90s, early 2000s, people understood that that wasn't cool. And then people started to say, why was that ever cool? How was that ever a safe thing to do to your head? Like, how was that ever socially acceptable and even popular to cut your hair like that? Meanwhile, nine years earlier, it was. And that's how everything works. People look back on a lot of things. Some things age well. I mean, there are things that are timeless. That's why that's a phrase. This is timeless. But some things are not. And the people who did them look back on them more than anybody and say, why did people do that? Why did people like that? Meanwhile, they were the one doing it. And I'm, I'm always interested in seeing how that plays out in music and art. You know, I think about some of the bands who are popular in my hometown. There were these bands who were sort of like skirting a line. I wasn't terribly into this stuff. My friends were. But there were bands who were kind of skirting a line between indie rock and hardcore and uh, what people called like screamo, screamo. What people referred to as that, metalcore. All that shit was very popular. I had some friends who looked that way. I had some friends who got that haircut, wore the the tight pants, and who had that look. And like anything, some people pulled it off, some people didn't. But at some point, it was communicated that if you were into music and you went to shows, that was a safe look. Other, you went to shows and you saw other people looking that way, and that was a safe look. I was looking at one of the bands, or there was a band who got very popular. They ended up signing to a major label. And I was looking back at their... They had two singers. That was when having two vocalists, two guys who only did vocals, was considered cool for a minute. And one of their singers was my friend's cousin, and he was sort of the king of this local scene... And he had a fashion, I might have talked about this recently, but he had a fashion line where the band would take thrift store clothes and screen print over them. And it was a unique look at the time. And he would just make up his own designs. He had a screen printer, and so he would just screen these shirts, make different clothes. And all the local kids loved it. Like They would go to their shows and be eager to buy something, and it was all unique because they were using just random thrift store shirts, it all ended up being unique. Like you could buy a yellow and green striped polo shirt that previously belonged to somebody's grandpa, but it would have that band's logo or their artwork screened on the chest. And that guy went from doing that for his band to doing just his own fashion designs. And I'd completely forgotten about that. I'd completely forgotten about that little window of time where that was considered cool. And I looked it up and I found just some traces. Like, he doesn't do it anymore. He's now a programmer for Netflix, amazingly. But he doesn't do that anymore. Like, age caught up to him. Turns out that wasn't something he could do forever. But I was looking at his old fashion line, and it was just like proto-streetwear. It was pretty much indistinguishable 
from in what in recent years has been called streetwear, which is just like clashing colors, you know, just like layering clothing. The designs were very similar. And it's funny to look at that because, like, I mean, streetwear is a good example of something that won't age well. It already hasn't. I don't even have an opinion on streetwear. But streetwear, is, it's, it's one of those things where you see it. Like, the second I saw people wearing streetwear, I remember, like, I had a, a friend, a girl who was a hip-hop artist. And I went to a couple of her shows. And it was, I was obviously completely out of my element. But I saw what some of the people were wearing, like some of the performers, and it was the earliest sign of streetwear. And these people were obviously the first wave. These people were obviously part of the first wave. They were actually making hip hop. And even though they weren't big, they were clearly aware of what was cutting edge and what wasn't. And I just noticed it. I didn't know that it was called anything. I didn't know that it had a name, if it even did at the time. But I kind of got what they were doing. Like they would wear tight pants, sag down very low, with like high top tennis, high high top Nikes and some clashing colors, with like layers of like hoodies and jackets that all clashed with each other, with weird designs, but it was all distinctly urban and hip hop. At the time, I, I didn't like the aesthetic at all, but I kind of got what they were going for. And it wasn't entirely safe because they did, they did look like clowns. It did look like a clown outfit. But then I started to notice that streetwear take that, that streetwear look taking off. And as I saw more and more people doing, I'm like, oh yeah, this is one of those things that a lot of people are doing or a number of people are doing, but it's not going to age well. I completely understand that this is people now know that it's safe to do this, and it makes you seem a certain way. It puts you somewhere near the cutting edge. It puts you near the blade. But you can see that it, this will become dated probably even more quickly than a lot of things. I don't know, though. You also never know what's actually going to stick around. But I'm interested in the feeling of this isn't safe. The, resi- the initial resistance people have to take on a new look comes from this place of, oh, this isn't safe. And it's not that they think they'll die if they do it. But I think they I think deep down they feel like this. I'll, I'll embarrass myself to death if I do that too soon. Like that feeling I had at the show where I watched this band, I watched their entire set totally unaware of who and what was around me. And then I turned around and I was the only person up front. I was the only person watching them. The feeling I had was like, oh, this isn't safe. And it came from a place of like, this is embarrassing, even though it's not. There's nothing embarrassing about this. I just happened to be the only one here who appreciated this style of music. But the feeling of like, oh, this was, this was an unsafe thing to do. It obviously wasn't practical safety. It wasn't like there was anything legitimately dangerous or life-threatening about it. It was just that, I guess, for the same reason we're embarrassed in school. For the same reason we think that if we admit who our crush is, and that's not an approved crush, it's not 
an attractive girl that will humiliate ourselves. That feeling seems to come from, the, from, I mean, safety is the word that I come back to, trust and safety. And that comes from, you know, some sort of precedent being established. But that feeling is very interesting to me. That feeling that what I'm doing will potentially bring me harm. If I get that haircut and it's not approved, that will potentially cause me harm. I mean, you could get, uh, you could go into some, onto some evolutionary biology tangent about where that comes from. That's not really how I see people, but I think you could bring it up. I mean, I think you could say that somewhere in our development, doing something that the rest, that the largest amount of people approve of impacted our immediate health and practical safety. Whereas straying from that at a certain point in human evolution would potentially lead to harm. But when Miles was here a couple days ago, you know, this is low-hanging fruit. This is a low-hanging ball sack. sack. This is a very low-hanging ball sack that's easy to kick with your high-top streetwear sneakers. All this stuff is. But the dyed hair thing, I'm not conservative in that way. Like, I've never been somebody who sees somebody with dyed hair and thinks, like, that's not very professional. Like, a sentiment that I hate, and I hate to see it among younger conservatives, is, like, the whole, like, good luck getting a job with that haircut. Oh, you're never going to get a job with that haircut. Because we can see now that, like... Staffing agencies advertise themselves using people with green hair and tattoos. So it's kind of turned that upside down. We're like, you probably look more like an office professional today if you have a half sleeve going down your arm. And that sentiment of like, good luck getting a job with that haircut. Good luck getting a job with that tattoo. I always hated that sentiment and I still hate it. And I hate to say, I hate to see new people adopting it. But that said, you know, it has nothing to do with like whether or not it's socially acceptable. But what gets me about like people having green hair and purple hair in the numbers they do is like, I've always known people who dyed their hair. I've had girlfriends who dye their hair different colors. But it did at some point, like even though people have been doing that, it's, it's, it's never been an original thing to do. Like when people dyed their hair a certain color in the 90s or 2000s, it, was, it wasn't an original thing to do. You wouldn't look at that person and be like, well, clearly they have a unique personality. But it also wasn't something you saw in large amounts. You didn't see a lot of people. When somebody did it, you just either thought like, oh, well, they're trying to assert their individuality. Or you just thought, well, they saw somebody else do that and they thought it was cool, whatever, whatever it is. But you didn't see people doing it in large numbers. And when Miles was here, we were kind of playing a little game. Like we went to the st- couple stores. And I feel like this is, this is below me to comment on. But it is all around us. And it is unavoidable. And we just we walked into Target. And there was immediately three girls with dyed hair, swoop haircut. We went up to the weed store 
and there was a like the girl working had two two of the people working like one of the girls was just like kind of a normal hippie-ish looking girl but she still had like a light shade of lavender hair the other person working was a them they were a they them who had like a, a green swoop haircut and then we went somewhere else and there were two people so like just on one walk going to like three stores Within minutes of walking in, like in Target, we didn't even go in the store. We went in and used the restroom. But within just walking into the foyer, walking into the foyer of Target, there were immediately three girls with dyed hair. And two of them had the exact haircut you'd expect. And we were just talking about that, though, how it's just something you see everywhere now. And how it's really just, it's a uniform for a certain way of thinking. Nothing about it communicates individuality. Nothing about it communicates that that person is cool or hip now. It just seems to be a uniform. And I've said this before, but like when you see somebody who looks like that, I try not to do this with people. I try not to do it. But when you see somebody who looks that way, you immediately know what their opinion is on every single issue, even completely unrelated issues. Like I can tell you what that person thinks about abortion, Donald Trumpsfeld, Ukraine, coronavi, you know, gender, race, any major issue that people debate and argue about, any polarizing issue. When I see somebody who looks like that, I know immediately what they think about every single one of those things. And that uniform communicates that. And they've taken on that uniform at a time where it's completely safe. Where I see these people working. Like it doesn't matter whether it's an office, a grocery store, it doesn't matter what type of business it is. Those people don't seem to be suffering because they look that way and they shouldn't suffer for it. Companies shouldn't refuse to hire somebody who looks that way because they have green hair and a tattoo on their thigh. Because that's the other thing that picked up steam. Like some years back, it was kind of, it was considered cutting edge to have a bunch of like, a bunch of tattoos on your thigh and leg, separate random tattoos that were spaced apart that kind of looked like prison tattoos. And both girls and guys, hip girls and guys in Portland, Seattle and Olympia, they would wear short shorts and show off these leg tattoos. And what's funny is now I see those on totally normal people. Because it was different. Like, when people started getting those tattoos on their legs, when they started to get like a random, like a spider, and then over here this, and they were just sort of randomly thrown on the fronts of their thighs. It was different 10 years ago. Because... By then, tattoos were very popular, but the idea was to get like an interlocking, interconnected sleeve. When tattoos really started getting popular, the idea was to have everything be connected, everything planned out. Oh, I'm going to go to the tattoo shop and they're going to do a little bit more work on my sleeve. I'm going to go to the tattoo shop and get a little more work on my sleeve. It was like very well planned out. Everything was connected. Your entire body was, if you got tattoos all over your body, it's like they were an interconnected design. And so these, these kind of hipster kids, 
getting just like random tattoos thrown on their thighs and legs. It was kind of like it was a way of still getting tattoos, but doing it doing it in a way that wasn't mainstream or popular. And it stood out because it was like, oh, wow, that's kind of gritty. That's kind of like old school, like back in the day when someone would just get a random tattoo. But now we can see that a lot of people have that. And that doesn't prevent people from getting jobs. None of this. It's all very safe. The fact that people can have a green swoop haircut and a bunch of random tattoos on their body and piercings, that tells us that it's safe. The fact that a big chain like Target has people like that working the cashier. The fact that staffing agencies will have somebody like that on their advertising. That tells us that there's, there's really no risk to doing that. There's no social risk whatsoever. And beyond that, it communicates a certain set of political and social beliefs, too, that are also fully accepted. There's no risk of being too far left today. Even when there's riots going on, that's not socially risky. Yeah, there's people who will, there's conservatives or moderates or independents who see somebody literally fanning the flames of a race riot who will say, oh God, I I don't like that person. I don't trust that person. But in terms of the mainstream and normal people, at least in liberal cities, There's no risk to supporting that. You can literally support violent behavior in the name of a political or social cause. And if it falls on today's left, it it can't go too far left. It will be accepted. And so there's no risk to that, whereas there used to be. There used to be risk to that. Like, people used to feel a little bit sheepish admitting they were socialist. And depending on the place, maybe that's still true. But in general, you can promote those values, and it's totally accepted now to do it on a public platform. I was dating this girl that I worked with in 2011, and we went out to dinner with her dad, and I had never met him. And we, were, we had all gone to the same college. Her dad went there, too. And they, they were talking about it, and they brought up this professor, Larry Mosqueda, a Chicano guy. And they mentioned, like, the girl I was dating said, like, oh, Larry Mosqueda's, I think he's the only true socialist professor, the only true Marxist professor at the college. And her dad was like, oh, yeah, he was a very liberal guy. And I said, oh, I had Larry, because I did, I had Larry as a professor. I liked him, actually. I'm not a Marxist. I don't like Marxism. I thought he was good at his job. I thought, he, you know, he didn't force Marxism on us. He did talk about protests. You know, he had attended the the Port of Olympia protests that were going on at the time. And he talked to us about how to go about that. He talked to us about the Chicano movement. I was already very, I was already much more conservative than my peers when I was in college. And there were times where I felt put off by some of the things professors and students said. I never remember feeling put off by Larry. Maybe I'd feel differently now, but despite not agreeing with him on those ideas, I thought he was a great professor. 
I thought he was a smart guy who spoke to us like adults. But I mentioned it to them. I was like, oh, you know, I had Larry in college. And they were like, you did? They were shocked. They were like, you had Larry? And I, and I was like, yeah. And somehow me saying that, though, communicated to her dad that I was a socialist or a Marxist. Because he looked me deep in the eye and he goes, you know, I think you and I have very similar philosophies. It was like the, the dad thumbs up of approval, but for something that wasn't true. I was like, shit, he, he thinks I'm a Marxist. He goes, it, it was weird. He looked at me and he was like, just because I said I had that professor, he thought, oh, he must be a Marxist too. And he said, he, he said uh, to me, like, you and I, I think, have a lot in common. I think that instead of my daughter dating you, what if you and I just go out sometime? What if you and I, can I buy you a drink? No. But he gave me the dad thumbs up, but for the for totally wrong reasons. And then afterward, like the next day, she told me like, oh, you know, I talked to my dad about you. He really liked you. He just wishes, he, he felt like you were on guard. He felt like you were a little too guarded about your opinions. And from what she said, it sounded like he thought I was a total commie. And that I was afraid to tell, I was afraid to share my values with him because I didn't realize he was a total commie and I was worried about being judged. Meanwhile, her dad was a commie. I'm not. And he thought I was and wanted me to be more open about it. So just a fucking quagmire. And the relationship didn't work out, but. <laughs> you know, it's just like, wow. But what's funny, my point being is that at that time, like her dad thought that I was a commie who just didn't want to say it to her dad because it, it was considered a little more questionable. Now that situation wouldn't even play out. Now, now people are just talking openly about that stuff. Like I had a socialist kid in my classes at Evergreen and he was very outspoken about it, as many are. And I remember the professor asked him, the professor was an old guy who called George Bush a son of a bitch in front of class and then apologized. He goes, that just wasn't appropriate of me. But uh, he said to the socialist, he's like, what does your dad think about that? What does your dad think about the fact that you're a socialist? Because that was sort of the sentiment. The idea is that being a socialist was completely unacceptable. And there are parts of the country where that's still true. There are parts of Texas, maybe, you know, there's parts of the South where it isn't socially acceptable. But what I'm talking about is the larger, co the larger cultural climate. In the larger cultural climate in the mainstream today, you could have green hair, tattoos, piercings, and be wearing a hammer and sickle shirt and working at Target. There's, there's no issue with it. And so that tells me that there's no risk to it. But that whole aesthetic and, the, and one of the reasons why people are attracted. Yeah, there are people who legitimately believe in socialism. But when I was growing up, it was a way to be counterculture. The kids I know who, who became socialists or communists or Marxists. They were very much motivated by individuality and going against the grain. And some of them stuck to it, but a lot of them, they, they just wanted to take on a belief system that conservative America didn't like.
because conservative America was over the top about, you know, McCarthy, you know, McCarthyism and everything was completely over the top in the opposite direction. But what was interesting to me is just to see that become normalized. And there was a point in time where doing those things had a certain amount of risk attached. It was rebellious. Even if you were just following other rebels, it was rebellious to be covered in piercings, tattoos, green hair, and to wear a hammer and sickle shirt. Sickle shirt. But that there's really low risk in a lot of places today to doing that. So what is it? I mean, I know that there's a complex that those people have where they still think they're a rebel. They still think they're the resistance. That's what kind of fuels them. But some of them have become self-aware. It's like when Raytheon and Goldman Sachs were parroting BLM slogans. Like a friend of mine who's very much of that belief system, I respect her. I don't agree with her, but I respect her as a human being. She noticed during that she was saying, oh, God, I I can't help but notice that corporations are saying the same thing I am about BLM and Trumpsfeld and all this. But her take on it wasn't to change her views. It was just to not trust the corporations, which is better than the alternative, which is seeing that corporations are saying the same thing you are, seeing that Raytheon is saying the same thing you are, and going, Raytheon's awesome. Oh, Raytheon supports BLM. That's awesome, just like me. Because that's how some people operate. You know, my friend, and there's a reason why I like her, even though I don't agree with her on many things, at least her take was like, oh, corporations are saying the same thing I am now. Well, I still don't trust them. You know, I, I would think with some people it would give them pause and be like, what do I actually believe? The fact that corporations think think it's advantageous to say these things should make me question, is this actually what I believe? Is, is this actually good? But at least she went as far enough to, to say, well, at least I'm not going to trust the corporations because there's a whole other branch of people who are like, well, the corporations are cool now. But that whole identity is still largely based on the fact that it was once against the grain. It is now the grain. And when Miles and I were going around, it was just a stupid little game. I mean, he lives in Portland. I live in Olympia. There are larger concentrations of people who look that way here than there are probably in other places. But you do see it everywhere. And we've been aware of it for years. Both he and I have been aware of that look and that identity for years but I still kind of have to remind myself how insane it is that just going to three stores in the span of an hour, the number of people who looked that way. It was still like a fun little game, just like, oh yeah, there's one. There's one. But it's clear the tipping point has already broke on that. I would guess in the next two years, I mean, time is moving faster than ever. Science, trust the science on that one. Time is moving faster than, every, than ever. But I would say in the next two years, we are going to see 
a very steep decline in that look. Don't be shocked at all if you see far fewer girls with the sides of their heads shaved and the, the top grown out and swooped to one side and dyed pink or green. Don't be surprised if you don't see that. The tattoos are forever. Don't be surprised if those very distinct fashion styles have a sudden drop off. It's going to be just like that haircut. Just like that haircut guys had, the, the barbershop, the modern barbershop haircut. It's going to be just like that where you notice that it's reached its tipping point and it's proliferated, it's mainstream. And then you're going to notice just a sharp cliffside drop off. That's what's going to happen with that look. What's different about it, though, is something like the, the modern barbershop do wasn't really associated with one type of person. You had like liberal hipsters with it, but you also had alt-right dudes. You also had like silly, like pseudo alpha male bodybuilders with it. You had dudes who just have beards and beards and drink beer, beards and beer. You had those sorts of guys with it. It wasn't attached to any one set of beliefs. It wasn't really a uniform. It was just a way of saying, I'm a current man. What's different with this look that I'm describing that so many young women in particular have is that it's a uniform for a certain set of beliefs. And I think that's part of the attraction. Because when you look that way, like if somebody looks that way, I would think twice about having a conversation with them about anything contentious. I avoid doing that to begin with, but with them in particular, I probably wouldn't want to engage in a conversation with them about anything because the whole of their being is associated with a certain set of beliefs. I hate to see people this way. I hate to categorize people. I hate to lump all those people together, but it's true. And you will find no exceptions to it. You know, there was a girl who looked that way, who got famous. I don't know about famous, but she got a little bit of notoriety online because she looked exactly like that. But she voted for Trumpsfeld. But that was her whole shtick. Her whole shtick is that she was one of those girls who got woken up by, I think it was maybe the summer 2020 riots. And then she started making TikTok videos about this new belief she had, this new way of seeing the world, and how she was going to vote for Trumpsfeld. And conservative pundits gave her a little bit of a platform. She got notoriety, though, because she was the exception that proves the rule. Girls who look like that, and she used to think that way, and I'd be curious what she looks like now. I'd be curious because she had green hair, short green hair with like a curly cue, glasses, piercings. Like she looked exactly like that person. She looked, she wore that uniform to a T. And what made her significant is that she had awakened from that. I'd be curious if she's still doing that. She was clearly milking it though. Her whole shtick was, I look like one of those people, but I'm not that anymore. 
I used to be one of those people, and I still look that way, but I'm not that. It's just a shtick. Just a stick. It's just a stick. But you're you're not going to find those exceptions. You could gamble on that. You could bet money on it. And I wish I could. But you could bet money that if you see somebody who looks that way, you know what their belief system is. You know what their opinions are. You know that they regularly complain about fellow white people. You know that they regularly complain about men. You know what slogans they parrot. You know exactly how they voted. You know what their take is on pretty much every single issue being debated in America today. But it's totally low risk. They're not risking anything by doing that. Whereas we can see today what is high risk. And some of the high risk opinions are very mundane and not truly controversial. The controversy is a total illusion, which speaks to everything I'm talking about. If you focus on something and tell people it's controversial, they will believe that it has some sort of controversial property to it. But it's not. Many of these issues that people debate are not controversial at all. The controversy is a total illusion, and it has convinced people that it is controversial, but it's really something mundane. It's very similar to looking to everybody. If everybody focuses on something and says that it's cool, or, or rather, if, if a small group of people decides something's cool and other people notice that and they say, oh, hey, I, I noticed that those people think that's cool, I'm going to notice it now. And now a, a huge group of people are focusing on it with the idea that this is cool. This is cool. Suddenly it's cool for a while. But that's just going to stop. And... That's what happens with controversy, where a small group of people says, this is controversial, this is offensive. Other people see that and go, oh, hey, that small group of people thinks this is controversial or offensive. I'm going to see it the same way they do. Then a much larger group of people is like, well, they think it's controversial, so it must be. Hey, this is really controversial. Oh, hey, you think that men and women are different? That's controversial. But that's going to, you know, unless they really hammer this home forever, that's going to subside. That's no longer going to be controversial at a certain point because it's not. And that's what we see with these earlier trends, too. When someone thought a certain haircut was cool in 1990 and then they look back on it, in the year 2000 and say, I thought that was cool then, but it's not. Well, it was never cool. The illusion told you it was cool, but it was never cool. With these controversial issues, right now you think it's controversial. You've been convinced that it's controversial. You very well might look back on that, hopefully. As long as things don't get worse, which they might for a while. But somebody 
at some point in time is going to look back on that and say, oh, I was convinced that was controversial, but looking at it now, who cares? It's like with this shit at the Oscars or whatever that was. Talk about low-hanging fruit. But a celebrity hitting another celebrity. And everybody talking about it, including me right now. Those are the sorts of things that you're going to look back on and say, oh, that seemed like a big deal at the time because everybody focused their energy on it. Everybody had a take. Right now, people are having serious debates about that. There are articles being written. Famous people are giving their opinion. And other people are responding to that opinion with their own opinion and they're fighting and hating each other about it. Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at a totally fake... I, you know, I don't know that that was fake, but it's like at a totally fake event has led to people talking passionately about it and what it means, reading into it analyzing it completely insane people are going to look back on that and yeah I guess it's significant that somebody hit somebody that a famous person hit somebody whether it was staged or not it's significant that somebody got hit but people are going to look back on that and, and just be like why did I have an opinion on that why did I think that was important why did that matter at all to me but a certain number of people paid attention to it. I mean, everybody was watching it. Who, uh, I mean, everybody who, who follows just what's going on in the public saw it, is what I'm saying. Not that everybody was watching the Oscars or Grammys or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, a certain number of people thought it was significant. That kind of feeds on itself so that everybody has their take, leading to me commenting on it here to get meta about it. But people are going to look back on that and be like, why did I have a passionate opinion about that? Why did I analyze that? Why did I have an impression based on that? And you see that a lot from other events. You know, it's like the Madonna and Britney Spears kissing or whatever it was. Like people look back on that and they're just like, oh, yeah, that was just like a hollow attempt at attention. And they don't even think about it. But at the time, it was a headline. People were focused on it. And the more people that focus on it, the more people focus on it, the more important it seems. If everybody is talking about one thing, that thing starts to seem very important. If everybody thinks that one thing is cool, it seems cool. If everybody thinks one thing is controversial, it seems very controversial. If that's what people are focusing on, that becomes their reality. That becomes their framework. But time shows that it was completely meaningless, that it was an illusion, that it didn't matter at all. But what's interesting about the time we're living in now is it's obvious so many of these things don't matter. It's completely obvious they don't matter. But people are so intense. They're more intense than they ever were. Because people have the platform to express themselves, they can't resist the urge to express themselves. And people think that in order to be sincere, or in order to be a legitimate member of our society, you have to be passionate about whatever it is people care about. 
You have to be very passionate about whatever people are focused on. And because of that intensity, because things are more intense than they ever were, this, what I'm talking about here, the way focus inflates the importance of something, that's, that's always happened. But I don't believe it's ever been this passionate and intense. And people just forget about it. They just forget that it ever happened. They forget they ever cared. I mean, the BLM riots are a good example where when that was going on, a lot of young women, including those I know, were pointing fingers and being like, your silence is is causing the deaths of millions of people every year. Your silence, I, I can't help but notice you haven't said anything. Can't help but notice you haven't declared your allegiance. That was intense. People were scrutinizing each other. They were signaling like I've never seen it before. They were being dishonest, whether it was intentional or not. They were being very dishonest. But look at them now. They still have many of the same opinions on those things. They still have the basic take, but that passion has died down. And it almost seems like they've forgotten that they were even behaving that way. It's like someone who gets in a fight and forgets they were in a fight 10 minutes ago. I'm the kind of person where if things come to a head, I'm going to remember it. Like if I think something was cool, not that I'm immune to trends, I'm not. But if I think something was cool, usually I can look back and, re- and remember why it was cool. Or let's just say if I liked something, like selling records and stuff, like I look at things and I don't feel any disdain for most of them. Like looking through my record collection and being like, you know, I really don't want to own that many records anymore. There's a lot that I need to get rid of or can get rid of. I don't look at things and go, I can't believe I was into this stupid thing. Why did I ever like this? I don't think that about most of it. I think this was cool. This is cool. It doesn't need to be a part of my life. Somebody else will appreciate this more. But I can understand what's cool about it. Of course, like going through CDs from high school, I look at those and I'm like, oh my God, this was not cool. There's things I see where I'm like, oh yeah, I was just, I thought this was cool. It wasn't. But a lot of the things that I had, I'm just like, yeah, this, this is cool. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just not something I need anymore. It's not for me. And so living a life where you do that, like living a life where you get into things, where you're passionate about things, and you realize you might not always be passionate about that, but you want to be able to look back after the passion has died and say, I still understand why it was cool. I still understand why I cared about that. I understand why other people thought it was cool, why they cared about it. Or the things that upset you. Like looking back at like big events that upset you in your life, like a breakup. Like I think most people go through life and like they go through breakups when they're younger and they look back and they're like, man, I can't believe that I let myself get so devastated and depressed because of that silly young breakup. But you also look back and you're like, that was important at the time. That was a big event in my life. It wasn't stupid. 
while hopefully I, I've learned something and I have life experience now and I won't be depressed to that level for three months, I at least understand what I was feeling. That was a controversy in my life. That breakup was a controversy in my life at that time. Even though I'm not feeling that now, even though that's just, I'm glad she's married. I'm glad she's, she's got a kid. I'm glad that we've, I'm glad we broke up. I'm glad we broke up. You know, you can think that now, like, oh, yeah, I'm glad that that happened. But you look back and you're like, I understand why that was a controversy in my life. I understand why that was a dilemma in my life. So that's a basic guideline you can use to navigate this stuff. Is this going to be something that I look back on and not care about it the way I care about it right now? But am I going to be able to even understand why I cared about it? Oh, I'm interested in this subject. I'm interested in this book. I'm interested in this band. I believe this. I have this opinion. Am I going to look back at this someday and say, why did I like that? Why did I have that opinion? Why did I think that was cool? Why did I think that mattered? Why did I care? If you're going to look back and think that, well, maybe you should question your interest in it right now. Maybe you should question what you're doing. But if you're going to look back at things in your life, and this is as above, so below, micro, macro, it applies to you and it applies to large groups of people. But if you're going to look back at things and say, hey, you know what? I've changed, but I at least know why I cared about that. I at least know what the value of that was. I think that's a good guideline to follow. Don't, don't follow your passions in such a way that everything you're passionate about right now is something you're going to be passionate about forever. You know, that's blasphemous to think that way. You never know what life's going to do. You, know, you don't know how you're going to change. But you can at least say, like, is this something where if I'm not passionate about it in 10 years, will I, will I at least still understand why I was passionate about it and that it was something worth being passionate about? That it was something worth doing? even if I have no need to do it now. That's a guideline you can use. This land is mine God gave this land to me this brave this golden land to me and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free Take